Good evening, everybody. Hope you all are doing great. Welcome to Cash Cow. Now, having a great accountant by your side can mean the world when you're trying to run a business or sit at the helm of a company or do anything that you put your mind to. After all, you're trying to change the world or make the world a little bit better and you need someone at your side to help you navigate the language of business, which is finance. Accounting, when done properly, can be your best friend. But at times, it can also be your worst enemy. For example, when you're involved in accounting fraud or misunderstanding or even worse, misreporting your financials. To give you an example of this, let's take a look at one of the most infamous and well-known financial scandals of our time. Today, let's look at the fall of Enron. Welcome to Cash Cow, the show where we talk about finance, accounting, investments, and many more. Join us as we walk through the big world of finance, one step at a time. Alright, so this is one of those topics which accounting business and finance lecturers love to talk about. So if you've done any of those subjects, or all of those subjects in university or college, you would have likely heard about this story. Uh, the scandal with Enron and I think that the reason for that is um, because Enron's story helps to show what happens when a company's directors or management um, deliberately misrepresents their company's financials to the general public and to all their stakeholders and um, it also shows how detrimental that can be not only to the company itself but the stakeholders and if you're large enough the market in general. Uh, so we'll look into the Enron case today. Let's talk about it. So before we talk about the fall of Enron, let's talk about the rise of Enron. So Enron Corporation was a U.S. energy, commodities and services company based out of Houston, Texas. Enron was formed in 1985 as the merger of two natural gas transmission companies, Houston Natural Gas and Internaut. The merged company HNG Internet was renamed Enron in 1986. Now, under chairman and CEO Kenneth Lay, or as he was later known, Ken Lay, who rebranded Enron into an energy trader and supplier, Enron rose as high as number 7 on Fortune uh, magazine's list of the top 500 US companies. The bull market of the 1990s helped also to fuel Enron's ambitions and contributed to its rapid growth. So in 2000, uh, the company employed about 21,000 people and posted revenue of 111 billion US dollars. So this guy, I mean, this company was a blue-eyed boy, right? It's a real star performer on the Nasdaq. Um, and essentially, its business at this later stage was trading derivative contracts for a wide variety of commodities, uh, including electricity, coal, paper, and steel, and uh, even for the weather, right? And they diversified a lot. The, an online trading division, Enron Online, was launched during the dot-com boom and the company invested in building a broadband telecommunications network to facilitate high-speed trading. Um, they also had a deal with Blockbuster, which we'll, get into which we'll get into later. But let's rewind to the 1990s, right? And Ken Lee, the CEO of Enron at the time. It's also important to introduce a chap named uh, Jeffrey Skillings. Now, as a consultant for McKinsey and Company or McKinsey and Co., the famous consulting uh, management consulting firm, Skilling worked with Enron uh, during 1987, and Skilling impressed Kenneth Lay in his capacity as a consultant. 
and it was hired by Lei during 1990 as chairman and CEO of Enron Finance Corp. Uh, this happened quite of this happens quite often um, in con- management consulting when uh, you know a client is pleased with a management consultant's work they might actually try to bring them on as a employee as an employee right um so in 1991 after becoming ceo of enron finance corp skilling became the chairman of enron gas services corporation which was a result of the merger of enron gas marketing and enron finance corp Skilling was named CEO and Managing Director of Enron Capital and Trade Resources, which was a subsidiary responsible for energy trading and marketing. Then he was promoted to President and COO of Enron, the group, uh, during 1997, and he became second only to Lay himself, while remaining the manager of Enron Capital and Trade Resources. In other words, Skilling rose up the ranks um, fairly quickly, uh, and he became the number two in command after Kenneth Lay himself. the founder and CEO right uh in 1992 skilling uh this where things get interesting skilling's adopted a certain accounting technique called the mark to market accounting technique now mark to market is accounting practice that uh, involves adjusting the value of an asset on the balance sheet to reflect its value as determined by current market conditions so under mark to market accounting assets can be recorded on a company's balance sheet at their fair market value as opposed to their book values and uh, with mark to companies can also list their profits as projections rather than actual numbers which means basically using this um, form of accounting this technique of accounting enron essentially had free reign to uh, present the numbers however which way they wanted right they if they foresaw that they could earn 20 million from a factory they could very well uh you know book that 20 million as a revenue in this year and as you probably can tell that's a bit um borderline ridiculous or borderline sketchy which it is actually in my opinion it is now um so for example like i gave earlier right uh, a factory if enron built a factory it could recognize the future cash flows of that factory as revenue today instead of just some projection or some forecast or budget now mark to market in and of itself is not illegal or even um some would say wrong but the way in it in which it applied it's very very important so let's get an example here let's say we buy a 1000 ringgit asset today and in a year the market value becomes 800 okay let's say for example that asset is a is a car or something right and um, or maybe let's let's take stocks okay let's take stocks because stocks can appreciate as well as depreciate right so let's say we buy a 1000 ringgit worth of stocks today and in a year the market value becomes 800 and the second year it drops to 700 and the third year it goes to 900 and the fourth year it becomes 1100 and the fifth year when you sell it uh you get 1200 as a result of that uh, you selling that asset so essentially you made 200 bucks profit so there's two ways to look at it from an accounting standpoint you can take the difference of what you sold the asset for and what you bought it for and in this case the gain from the asset is like i said 200 ringgit okay that's classic cost accounting um what you buy minus what you sold it for and you get your profit your gain um so if you want to get into accounting at the surface level yeah so you credit your cash in your first year 
uh, when you buy the asset and you debit your asset and both of these sit in your balance sheet and in the last year when you sell the asset you will hit, get that 200 ringgit gain hitting your profit and loss statement or your income statement i don't want to get too into the double entry and all this but essentially that's what it is right it's all in the balance sheet and then on the last year when you get that gain it's the pnl uh, unless in between there's depreci- depreciation and all, all this which um, we're not going to take into account here for now we're just going to look at these numbers and compare it to um mark to market all right so that's the first way of looking at this asset and how you capitalize it on your profit and loss statement um the second part of it the the other way that you can look at this is from the uh, mark to market uh, way and um, with the mtm method you have to analyze the gain or loss every year and charge it to your pnl so for example the first year you book a loss of 200 ringgit why because it it went up it went from 1000 ringgit to 800 ringgit so you look at the market value of that asset let's say you bought a stock let's say you bought nestle stock and on the second on the first year it's um, 800 ringgit so you know your value of your stock your portfolio went down by 200 so you recognize that in your pnl using this mtm method right and in the third year um sorry the second year it'll be lost of another 100 ringgit which is the second drop from 800 ringgit to 700 the third year will be a gain of 200 which is 700 to 900 the fourth year will be another 200 gain and the fifth year will be another 100 gain so essentially that 200 ringgit that you've recognized in the first way as being a profit or a gain from your last year in selling your asset is spread out over the course of your portfolio's life or your assets life in this method the mark to market method now fund managers derivative brokers use this method all the time companies like banks also do this all the time um, such as with their loans and stuff like this the good thing about the mark to market method is that it allows for updated numbers according to the current price however it does have its fallbacks uh, especially when the asset in question is not a listed liquid security like stocks for example like stocks you can look today at the stock exchange and know the price of 100 uh, shares of nestle or one lot of nestle and it's very easy to tell the numbers right but what if it's not a liquid listed security what if it's like a factory or a table or a chair or a car which you can't really you can sort of gauge the market value but you can't get a full-on 100 um, percent accurate kind of quote or estimate I mean, like you can estimate, but you can't know exactly what it is because there's no exchange. There's no security exchange for most um, illiquid assets. So what happens when that when that scenario presents itself? You have to use estimates, right? You have to guess. You have to venture assumptions. And when you do this, um, it creates that sense of volatility uh, in your, not only your way you calculate things, because it's assumptions, uh, it's assumptive, um, but you create a sense of volatility in your volatility in your books where you go, your finances going up and down every single year. For example, you have two hundred gain one year, then three hundred and get lost the next year, and that's just tiny numbers. What if your stocks or your portfolio of your assets were in the millions? Then you'll see this uh, rise and fall, you know, each year, and it cause your numbers, your books to be so volatile. Now. When you know when you say like um, you don't lose until you sell, it's a very common phrase among stock, uh, crypto investing, and all this. 
that doesn't apply when you use mark to market right does it does it make sense um when you use this kind of method that i don't think so i personally i disagree with the mark to market method and for obvious reasons because of the enron case and stuff like that where mark to market was used but in favor of the company recognizing revenue in advance based on projected future cash flow which is um i know there's a number of people who disagree and say that if mark to market is used with a proper um sort of guidelines then it can be a very beneficial tool and to some extent that's true but let's look more into the enron case first so now we know the general idea of mark to market right and how it's used it's basically uh, taking the fair value of your asset the book value and uh, comparing it to the market value right that you would get and closing the difference in your books right so back to enron after knowing this mark to market uh, concept let's go back to enron so skillings adopted mark to market and use it to sort of cook the books by booking future cash flows as revenues today and justifying it as market value and thus increasing the revenue numbers right without any real change in cash flow now this is another reason why the cash flow statement is so important right you can cook revenue you can cook your profit you can cook your bidda you can do all kinds of things to move the number up and down but you can it's very hard to lie on cash flow basis right cash is cash you can fabricate those numbers on your um financials without actually having to use severely uh mal uh, malpracticed ways of doing so right anyway in enron's case um the company would build an asset like a power plant and then immediately claim the projected profit on its books even though the company had not made a single cent from the asset now if the revenue from the power plant was re- less than the projected amount instead of taking the loss right so let's say predict 100000 ringgit over a year and the the power plant only made 50000 the balance 50000 the company would transfer uh, the asset it will transfer the asset first to an off the books corporation where the loss would go unreported so that 50000 just vanishes right and this type of accounting enabled enron to write off unprofitable activities without hurting its bottom line so it just transfer off the assets to corporations 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 and its bottom line remains the same profitable and this technique was approved by the sec back then um i don't know it probably didn't know any better at the time or didn't really was not really privy on what um skillings and enron was doing anyway because of the numbers the market loved it right they loved the increased revenues they loved everything about it and the stock price went from roughly around $10 plus to around $90 at its peak now one of the many unwitting players in this enron scandal was blockbuster if you are i guess old enough you might remember blockbuster um it's those place where you can get uh, movies on demand and stuff like that um if i'm not wrong you could rent like dvds and um, movies but um blockbuster was not in malaysia anyway so but you might have heard the name mentioned in movies or stuff that you read in the news and stuff like that so uh, it's essentially a video rental place right video rental used to be huge um when i was young uh, going out to the store and renting those big I, i forgot what you call it was it like vcr or was it um this is big like clunky black kind of 
um sort of large version versions of cassettes i don't know what the name is <laughs> but those kind of things where you shove it in your vcr play and it plays it's probably a vcr right anyway those can those things were pretty huge back then before cds and stuff um yeah so anyone who's around my age would probably remember it or older yeah you will remember this anyway um blockbuster was one of those juggernauts that uh, rented out videos right so in july 2000 enron broadband market was a sensible uh, sorry enron enron broadband services and blockbuster entered a partnership to enter the vod market right video on demand and this was before netflix and all obviously and the vo market was a good um, uh, you know a good choice to enter for enron but uh, enron in classic enron fashion started logging un- uh, started locking all their expected earnings based on the expected growth of the vod market which vastly inflated the numbers so i can go into a contract with uh, blockbuster today and i can estimate that i will make 100 million out of selling um, whatever video on demand services that i have in plan and i can book the 100 million today based on the mark to market ratio i mean a uh, mark to market practice which is um again borderline ridiculous if not completely ridiculous and um, all the while all the while enron was making significant losses right and the management team including uh, this new addition called uh, andrew fasto he was the new ceo and he uh, sorry he was the new cfo pardon my mistake there he was the new cfo and he developed a plan to hide the debts and other type of burning assets in the way that we mentioned earlier by shoving it into off um off the books kind of corporations um in something called an spv or an spe right these are called special purpose vehicles or special purpose entities now we'll get into more about this spes and spvs into another episode maybe because we are you know um, already on the 16 minute mark and I don't want to stretch this episode too long but in essence spvs are temporary shell companies which uh, are used to dis- disguise the debts and sweep them under the carpet right as the as the details of the accounting frauds emerged the stock price of the company went from that high that i mentioned about $90 per share to less than $1 by the end of november 2001 so that was a huge 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 drop and not surprising given what was happening in enron and with that drop it took the value of the enron employees 401k pensions which were mainly tied to the company's stock um now all throughout all this uh, skilling was slowly shell- selling off his shares while encouraging company uh, the company employees to buy more so he was kind of uh, a douchebag <laughs> for doing that and um he obviously made uh his share and left but um you know i i feel very bad for the employees right now you might be thinking with all this going on who in the world was auditing this company right there's a great question and it was actually famous accounting firm arthur anderson now you might have heard of arthur anderson and you might have not but arthur anderson llp was one of the largest public accounting firms in the 1990s it had more than 85000 employees in 84 countries now these guys were huge right and they were one of the big 5 um it's now the big 4 uh, pricewaterhousecoopers kpmg uh, ey ernst and young and deloitte right the big 4 accounting firms audit firms 
it was the big five um, with Arthur Anderson in the mix. But after this, obviously, it went off. Now, Arthur Anderson had a reputation for high standards and quality risk management, as do all the other members of the big four audit firms. However, despite Enron's poor accounting practices, um, Arthur Anderson offered its stamp of approval, you know, signing off on the AFS, the corporate reports for years. Arthur Anderson's Houston office was billing Enron a million dollars per week for auditing and consulting services, and David Duncan, the lead auditor, had an annual performance goal of 20% increase in sales, which begs the question, should audit firm employees be evaluated based on sales? Now that's another question for another day. But long story short, Enron and other catastrophic auditing failures like that of WorldCom Inc. um, caused clients to drop Arthur Anderson in favor of the other uh, in favor of the other audit firms, right? And you can't blame them, of course, because of the scale of what was actually happening in Arthur Anderson. Uh, sorry, in uh, Enron. Now the damage to Arthur Anderson's reputation was so severe that it was forced to dissolve itself, right? It's essentially an audit firm without trust is like KFC without chicken, right? You lose the thing that you are selling. The reason that customers and clients come to you in the first place so obviously it went under today Arthur Anderson is defunct as it has been since August 2002 now Enron's scandal was also a massive contributor in introducing the Sarbanes-Oxley Act or the SOX uh, which introduced requirements around internal control over financial reporting and corporate governance now Sarbanes-Oxley Act is a great topic especially for companies uh, even in Malaysia with subsidiaries or business in the US. It's very important to know, but unfortunately today we don't have the time to delve into it. We might get into it another day. And um, yeah, so that's the whole story of Enron and how it rose and how it fell and what lessons we can take from it. Remember, uh, if you are evaluating a company for investments, don't only look at the company itself, but the management team and any SPVs they might have floating around. You know, you remember Enron. Um, once again, uh, this was Cash Cow. Thank you for your uh, time listening to this. Drop your thoughts and any comments you might have. And reach out to me, man. Um, I, this is, okay, the episode is sort of over if you want to drop off. But um, I've been checking out my anchor page and uh, seeing the views and all. It's looking good. And I have like, I think, about 30 to 40 uh, unique listeners uh, I, I don't know if that's you know anchor if you've seen anchor it shows you your active listeners your monthly listeners or something like that and then your unique listeners so i have about 30 to 40 unique listeners and uh, i'm wondering who they are <laughs> because uh, you know i don't know man just reach out you know um let me know Drop your thoughts on any comments you might have. And uh, until next time, I thank you for your time. May your assets ever outweigh your liabilities. Until next week, this was Cash Cow and good night.